Welcome back to a very special episode of Why Won't No One Date These Guys, a brand new, very special trademark pending sister episode called Why Won't No One Date This Guy. It's very special because of how particularly sad it is. Unless someone else walks into the room while I'm recording, I will be the only one appearing today. I did have some free time now we didn't have to record, and there was something that happened last weekend I wanted to talk about. Rather than letting the anger and frustration I felt in that moment fade, I'm getting it out now. I'm really hoping this episode won't suck too much. I know the sibling banter keeps you all coming back, and Naomi does a great job of keeping us on track when I lose my train of thought. If you hate this episode, please leave lots of angry comments. We've received very little feedback so far about our episodes, and so if this is the one that, this is the straw that breaks the camel's back, that's good to know. So, spoiler alert for this episode, I'm going to be talking about and around the topic of trans rights in our society, dispelling some common arguments used against trans rights, and talking about how media is doing a horrible job at defending the rights of of an extremely marginalized group. But before we get to today's topic, I want to introduce our drink. Today I'm sampling Trader Joe's Holiday Shake Well Before Using Eggnog, their twist on a holiday classic. Here goes. Ah, still not great. It's pretty bad. I did have some of this already. This is leftovers from a holiday party that I attended. It's really hard to screw up custard. I don't know how they did it. It's very, very, very sweet. It has basically twice as much sugar as it needs. I watered it down in basically a half-to-half ratio with some oat milk, and that helps, but it's still not great. I guess there are multiple ways to preserve things. If you're making Ragnog without rum, I guess that means you need to put something else in to preserve it, and I guess the other option is lots and lots of sugar. Salt wouldn't work too well in Ragnog. So if you're buying this, one, I'd say don't buy it. I'd say make your own. But if you are, cut it with milk, about one-to-one. I'll put a link to a decent recipe that I've used before in the description. Uh, That's why you come to our episodes for links to good eggnog recipes. Okay, so let's get to today's topic. So when I was younger, I read history books and period pieces about the past and was frequently under the impression that if I had lived at that time, I would have done the right thing and treated people properly. It's just logical, right? Like, I think a lot of people think about this. Like, if I had lived at the time Frederick Douglass was around, I know I wouldn't have been a mean racist. Or I would have treated the women in Pride and Prejudice as wholly realized human beings. I think a lot of people raised in our culture read histories, they read books, and they come to this conclusion that racism and xenophobia is just illogical and people who believe these things at the time are dumb. But I do think in our culture today, a lot of people still hold on to some version of this idea, even past, you know, their middle school, primary school reading lists. They think to some extent that we've reached the peak of civilization in the present and hold mostly all the right attitudes about all the right people. That society, you know, despite some flaws in certain areas, accepts everyone regardless of sexuality, skin tone, or economic status. And unfortunately, I think, as we've seen in today's society, that's actually really wrong. You can see that with society's general tolerance towards homeless individuals, towards third world refugees fleeing for their lives across, you know, Europe and the United States borders, towards Native Americans. And as I'd like to talk about today, trans individuals. I think the problem of thinking about the past as the past is you don't really understand the mindset that influences people's bad opinions. You know, it's not just you existing in a vacuum. It's you being influenced by your friends and families and neighbors and media and all the surrounding culture around you. And so the mistake a lot of people make is because they're not surrounded by the racist convictions of the past, they assume everyone thinks that way. But I think we delude ourselves into believing that just because we move past biases, we're better in the present. And I think especially when it comes to issues like trans people, not enough are informed about the marginalization that occurs in society. And a lot of people, frankly, just don't care. I'd like to change that. There's still a lot of biases that people cling to even in the present. Biases which people 100 years from now will look back upon and laugh at and turn. Things that seem so backwards and silly that only inferior civilization would ever have believed them. So there's a lot of things I could potentially be talking about. I mean, given the content of our podcast, um, I have you know chosen to limit the scope. But there are three main reasons why I'm trying to focus on trans individuals today. The first reason is because I feel we didn't do a very good job covering transgender individuals when we did our sex ed episode explaining gender identity. It's a complicated topic. You can argue that it's simple, but I think the truth is a lot of simplistic ideas can have fairly simplistic rebuttals in turn. And there's a lot of misinformation about trans individuals that seems obvious on the surface, and you have to spend a lot of time unpacking the arguments for why, I mean, even that they deserve to exist, which seems crazy, but 
given some of the stuff I've read, unfortunately isn't. The second is because I know multiple trans individuals, you know, compared to issues like racism, compared to issues like, you know, refugees, I can't really speak with as much authority because I just don't genuinely know these people as well. I think it's important if you care about the world to care about a wide variety of issues, but I also wholly accept that it's difficult to maintain your level of compassion and, you know, frankly, rage about the conditions a lot of people tolerate without having a personal connection. You know, it's why the, the Batman stories lines work so well. You know, it's not completely insane to imagine that someone's horribly traumatized as a child because their parents were murdered and dedicates their life to fighting crime. The idea that personal trauma and personal experiences deeply affect, you know, your motivations in life and what you deem worthy of focusing on. And I think a lot of people who care about, you know, the world and want to improve it do have personal experiences relating to racism, the environment, the justice system, the economy that influence, you know, why they think that way. And then finally, the third reason is because I think there's a lot of bullshit opinions about trans people that are becoming more common and popular as time goes on. I'm going to talk about that a little bit more at the end. You may not agree with that initially, but Hopefully, you know, we've brought up how media has discussed trans people before in prior episodes. If you've listened, for instance, our current events episode, we did a bit on Dave Chappelle that I'm going to return to later. But today, I just want to talk a lot about the BS arguments used against trans people and then reflect on the broader society that continues to promote them. So I want to start with one of the best articles I've read this year, a recent interview in Current Affairs between Dr. Julia Serrano and editor Nathan Robinson. I'll be reading verbatim some of her responses, but have changed the structure slightly to give it a little more flow. So Julia Serrano is a PhD molecular biologist, a writer, and musician, whose books include Whipping Girl, A Transsexual on Sexism and Scapegoating and Femininity, Outspoken, A Decade of Transgender Activism and Transfeminism, and the surrealist novel 99 Erics. Her writing has appeared in the New York Times, Time, The Guardian, The Daily Beast, Salon, and elsewhere. She has written a number of articles, patiently taking apart common misconceptions, and has a transgender glossary of sorts, which is an essential resource for those who find gender and sexuality terms confusing or imprecise. She has a really good Medium blog where she covers a lot of this. All of the stuff, as I've seen, is free, so we'll link that in the description. If this stuff interests you and you want to see someone who's very well-informed kind of dissect these arguments in a bit more nuance, I would strongly suggest that you check it out. So yeah, Nathaniel Robinson and Julia Serrano have a discussion about some of her work and walk through a lot of the basic arguments. So one of the first arguments against trans people is that it seems a lot of people think that basic biology dictates that there's only two sexes which are assigned at birth. And Mr. Robinson asks whether or not Serrano thinks that general idea is correct. And she gives what I feel is a very compelling answer, where she says, generally, one thing that I started doing a couple of years ago that I find is a very useful analogy for people who have at least some basic scientific background is the idea of gravity. Gravity seems really simple. If I drop my keys, they fall to the ground, right? Really simple. We can all agree on that. It's common sense knowledge. But if you actually study gravity and get into the weeds of it, you wind up with Einstein's theory of relativity, which has some non-obvious realities to it, such as the fact that light bends when it encounters gravity, or that upon encountering a black hole, time slows down. That sounds weird, but it's reality, and you only get there by looking a little bit deeper than the surface. So a lot of times, I find that this analogy will open people up to the idea that there's a little bit more to this biological sex thing than meets the eye. I personally think you see a lot of this in society. <laughs> I've met a lot of people who've taken one Econ 101 class or watch a lot of network television and think that they understand everything about the economy. I'm not completely convinced that professional economists understand everything about the economy, and so I strongly doubt that individuals who've taken Econ 101 are going to do a better job. I mean, they may do a better job, I just don't know if that means it's going to be a good job. We accept, I think, intuitively that if you take a Physics 101 class, that they kind of trim down stuff to make arguments easier. When you're trying to calculate, you know, friction, a lot of the time objects are spheres. Um, a lot of the time when you're calculating physics problems, you're assuming frictionless surfaces. We should probably think about any introduction to a topic the same way, that it's going to necessarily have to oversimplify in order to cram all the possible overview content into a high school semester or a high school year or a college semester or a college year. So yeah, I, I think it's a good example where if someone brings up this idea that there's only two sexes that, you know, basic biology dictates men are men and women are women. Just being able to respond with the idea that science itself is a little more difficult than that. But okay, that's not necessarily a great argument. I'm sure people are going to have additional questions. And Robinson immediately cites a specific text that makes biological arguments and mentions a bit of the media behind it. So he says that there's this wretched, rancid new book by an editor of The Economist, Helen Joyce, called Trans, When Ideology Meets Reality, which I'm sure you've heard about. Richard Dawkins, who... 
for our listeners, used to be a much more credible biologist, says it's frighteningly necessary, thoroughly researched, passionate, and very brave. And one of the disturbing things is that obviously it got reviewed very well in the right-wing press. But it also got a positive review in the New York Times, and The Guardian was relatively positive on it. So he wanted to go through a couple of things that she wrote, and he gives a quote from the book. Underlying my objections to gender self-identification is a scientific fact. Biological sex has an objective basis lacked by other socially salient categories like race and nationality. Sexual dimorphism, the two sexes, male and female, first appeared on Earth 1.2 billion years ago. Mammals, animals that grow their young inside them rather than laying eggs, he notes that she probably forgot that platypuses exist, date back 210 million years. No mammal has ever changed sex. And he asks her, can you respond to this? So Serrano gives a couple of responses. The first thing she says is she reads a lot of anti-trans media in order to sort of inform herself on the arguments and the ideas that are being brought up. And one thing that she finds is that if they misunderstand basic facts about biology and evolution, there's no real need to argue against all parts if the premises inherently are incorrect. Unfortunately, that's not an argument I think would work on a lot of people who find this media compelling. Like, I guess you could argue that even if all of your basic assumptions are wrong, you could still reach the right answer, like when you're bumbling through a math class and inadvertently come up with the right answers on a test. And I think, unfortunately, that's one of the problems of being an activist, is that often you can have this understanding about the world and not want to bother answering every niggling question people have. Because, and we're going to get into this a little bit later, a lot of people are asking questions in bad faith. There's a lot, a lot of people who ask questions for the sole purpose to antagonize individuals and waste their time. And that can be frustrating. That can be extremely draining, and often you think you don't need to continue educating after a certain point. And I don't know if that's true, but I completely understand the perspective that says, okay, at a certain point as an educator, there's a level of argument I'm not going to go beneath. Like, unless someone's willing to come up to me to engage on my level, I'm not going to come down to them. I think that makes sense, but Ultimately, I don't know if that's persuasive in the long term. But she has a couple of other responses and says, even though each book has its own particular angle, most trans books go through the same talking points that are the ones that those of us who are familiar with anti-trans or trans-skeptical media can recognize. They touch on detransition and social contagion, rapid onset gender dysmorphia and desistance and the autogynophilia. It's basically 10 anti-trans boxes you can check. And of course, they never provide the other side of the argument. None of them considers counter-arguments. And it's really easy to make a one-sided argument. She tries to present both sides while explaining why she favors one, and sometimes that, you know, there is truth to these arguments. Like, I don't think anyone's going to argue that all arguments against transgender individuals are completely inaccurate, like the fact that there are people who detransition. But, as she says, the reality is much more complex than willing to concede. In many cases, you know, they're overemphasizing the idea that there are some individuals in the trans community, which, keep in mind, as we mentioned on podcasts, is somewhere between 1% and 3% of the total population. So, like, you would think that if the population of Earth is 7 billion people, and, you know, 1% of that is, what, not 700 million, 70 million individuals, that, you know, a decent chunk, you know, a couple thousand might invariably choose to detransition if they have, in fact, transitioned. But at the same time, that doesn't mean that, like, the vast majority of people don't benefit from transitioning. It means that, you know, a negligible number of people, you know, might have adverse side effects or change their minds later in life. So, Dr. Serrano wants to start out by saying, on the specifics of biology, in terms of the argument written in Miss Helen Joyce's book, that even amongst mammals, there's a lot of sex diversity in species that don't quite fit into rigid male and female dichotomies. For mammals, she concedes that, yes, there are... Unlike certain types of fish that change sex midlife, mammals don't have that, but there are mammals, including humans, who are intersex, which is a sexual dichotomy or sexual dimorphism, and they don't fall neatly into what's considered male or female. And this happens for every single physical sex difference that exists, whether it's chromosomes, whether it's hormones and secondary sex characteristics, whether it's reproductive organs. Miss Joyce is arguing that biology is a static truth that trans people fall outside of. But actually, we fall within the parameters of biology as seen for mammals. If she wants to talk about physical traits alone, then there's sexual orientation, gender expression, and gender identity. Obviously, we can't ask animals how they identify, but in all species of mammals, there are same-sex pairings. Mammals display a diversity of attraction. Same-sex attraction is found in every mammal that she thinks it's been closely examined in, as is whatever a combination of gender identity or gender expression is, where a male of the species will behave like the females behave, and a female behaves like the males behave. And intersex animals have been found for every mammal species that's been closely examined. So, anti-trans advocates can appeal to biology, 
biology, including sexual orientation, including aspects of what we as humans call gender, you can call it like sexually dimorphic behaviors. But all of those things vary within mammals. And to just ignore that by saying that people have always been male or female ignores the existence of intersexual animals. It's just very overly simplistic. I think we mentioned this, I don't know what episode it was, but yeah, there's a crazy number of people who have differences in their genitalia or chromosomes from what we might consider like statistically normal. And I want to say it was as high as like 5 or 10% of the population. Unfortunately, I couldn't find what podcast episode we cited some intersex statistics in. But, you know, I, I knew this back in high school because I was taking a college course on women's studies over the summer. And one of the things the textbook mentioned, and this is a textbook that was written, I think, in the early 2000s, citing research from the 1980s, is that even in like 1987, it was widely accepted within the biological community that there's at least five sexes of humans where there's just so many deviations seen of people who have, you know, strange chromosomal alignments or, again, strange genitalia, like male genitalia while having interior female sex hormones, that it really doesn't make sense to say there's only, like, two sexes, male and female. And so, like, even back then, there was already, you know, rigorous debate even before, like, trans activism had really kicked into gear. That's not to say there was not trans activism. Uh, it is to say that Obviously, there's a lot more opportunities nowadays for trans activists to get their message out, and I think there's been a lot more attention paid to the issues transgender individuals face within the past decade. So, Robinson goes further to discuss biology, and he says there's another part in Joyce's book where she's even more wrong, where she says gender self-identification is demand for validation by others, but the label is a misnomer because it's about requiring others to identify you as a member of the sex you proclaim. Since evolution has equipped humans with the ability to recognize other people's sex almost instantaneously with exquisite accuracy, very few trans people pass as their desired sex. And so to see them as that sex, everyone else must discount what their senses are telling them. And he says that just seems to be false. Serrano takes this opportunity to kind of have a field day. So she says... Yeah, on several different levels. You can tell that to all the people in my life who read me as female and assume I'm female. That happens with a lot of trans people. Sure, there are issues, depending upon when you transition and the randomness of other physical features. There are some trans people who don't pass. But to say that most people, most trans people don't pass is a big jump right there. It implies she doesn't really know too many trans people. But then, the idea of being biologically programmed to see the sexes differently, there's a large body of psychological and social research into how children learn to see differences between the sexes. It's pretty well established that it's a learning process. That's not to say there isn't a biological aspect to the differences, but we most certainly learn to do it. And we learn to do it differently than other groups of humans. Many human cultures, including indigenous American cultures, have third and fourth genders that are acknowledged in society. And people see them as a separate gender from male and female. That's a learned process. And so, different cultures might interpret gender diversity differently. A lot of people with negative attitudes towards trans people also express concerns about being deceived by trans people. That's long been out there as a meme in the media. You know, she isn't really a she, right? Or people freaking out when they find out that the person they're attracted to is trans. And it's like, yeah, that kind of goes against the whole thing that it's easy to identify sex. The other thing I want to add here, and this is something that blows her mind, is that these people keep pointing to chromosomes and reproductive organs and everything, but we don't see any of that. The physical differences we see between women and men are secondary sex characteristics. For example, muscle and fat distribution, breasts, or facial hair. These things are things that are brought on by hormones, which are the things that trans people often take when they transition. Uh, Dr. Serrano doesn't know how much of it, with any given anti-trans writer, is motivated reasoning, and how much of it is cluelessness, like not being at all familiar with trans people, but concludes that, yeah, the passage just fails on a number of levels. Okay, so Robinson continues, and again, I'm kind of chopping up this interview because it's very long and I'm trying to get to the meat of it. Again, I'd really suggest you read the whole thing because it's a very comprehensive piece that answered a lot of questions I had. But one of the things he brings up, which I've seen talked about in a lot of different anti-trans media, is the argument that if transness is not really based in biological sex and it's more based on how people feel, does it really exist in any form? Like, if transness is just a set of stereotypes, like wanting to wear pink if you're a woman and dressing in overalls if a man, does that really exist? And would it change over time if culture changed? So the way he phrases it is, I want to ask you about the definitions of terms like man and woman, and what it means to be a woman, what it means to be a man. One of the gotchas that the gender critical, or whatever you want to call them, people argue is that the only categories that make sense are biological man and woman. And if we don't use those, then any other definition is incoherent or based upon stereotype notions of femininity. I just want to read you two quick passages from Lenal Shriver and Helen Joyce. Helen Joyce says, There's a circularity to the mantra that trans women are women, which raises and leaves unanswered the question of what then the word woman means. 
And Lionel Shriver says, in order to construct a spectrum, it's necessary to understand what it means to be man or woman. We are told the trans woman may have been born a man, but feels like a woman. I don't mean to be perverse, but I have no idea what it feels to be like a woman, and I am one. And she says that the trans movement seems to think that a woman has a lot to do with the clothes you choose to wear and mascara and heels and whatnot, and considers that mild compared to what some other arguments are made by uh, people like Jermaine Greer. So Serrano spends some time unpacking this, and I think this is a really good argument because she's an individual who is herself trans and is able to speak from both her experience and her research in a very compelling way. So she says that there's this assumption that trans people are kind of delusional and have overly simplistic notions of gender, often very stereotyped ideas of gender, and that they're simply trying to fulfill gender stereotypes. And she believes that it's the opposite. Now, she doesn't want to put everybody in the box. She's talking specifically about her experiences and says, I started viewing gender the same exact way as every kid I grew up with. I'm Gen X. We were all taught to see gender a particular way. Involve stereotypes of bodies. Involve things that you were supposed to do. Things that you would grow up to be. All these learned ideas that were supposed to be inevitable. But because I was trans, I inexplicably had these really strong feelings. First and foremost, thinking that there was something wrong with my being a boy. But more importantly, just as an inexplicable feeling that I should be a girl. And that really scared me and it didn't make any sense. And I went through multiple stages of learning more and more about gender, learning more sexual diversity to the point where I came out as trans. I can assure you that I questioned gender to the point where I came out as trans. I can assure you that I questioned gender about a thousand times more than the average cisgender person. That's not to say that cisgender people don't question their genders. She's just saying she spent a huge amount of her life questioning and doing research and meeting diverse people. Part of her journey was meeting other queer people and meeting other trans individuals. She's not saying that every trans person is a perfect expert on gender, but what she's saying is by and large they spend a lot more time thinking about and questioning gender than the average cisgender individual. Going back to the question of whether or not trans women are women or a woman trapped in a man's body, these statements from a transgender perspective very clearly are attempts to explain something really complicated in a simple way to people who don't get it. Growing up, I had no idea what other girls felt or what other boys felt. I had no idea. I only knew what I was experiencing. And so when I say I'm a trans woman, it's not because I aspire to be a woman or have stereotyped notions of being a woman or that I'm making a crass assumption about what women really feel. I have no idea what anybody feels on the inside except me. There are some people with really strong feelings. You can say feelings. I would say it's a little more complicated than that. I describe it often as being similar to cognitive dissonance, a kind of understanding that your body should be in a particular way, that it isn't, and trying to sort that out. I found that compelling. I think that's a very interesting passage. I'm not saying I completely understand it, because I've never run into an issue where I've sort of questioned, you know, whether or not I was assigned the proper body at birth or anything. But I think it makes a lot more sense describing it as that than describing it as, you know, and in a weird kind of, you know, perversion of thoughts and idea that the experiences of other people, you know, wearing pink, wearing dresses, whatever, is more appealing. And I think, again, that a lot of anti-trans activists radically oversimplify how trans people think about the world, probably because they don't talk to trans people. So she continues and says, I think that gender is really complicated. And the problem isn't that trans people won't recognize or acknowledge the difference between trans women and cis women. It's that people who hold anti-trans positions refuse to recognize their many similarities. Every day of my life that I walk through the world and people read me as female, I've experienced sexism. I've experienced people sexually objectifying me. I've experienced men talking over me. I have a very good sense of what it's like to be a woman. I don't see my experiences as a woman being universal or being just like any other person's experiences. And so it's really just disingenuous for them to make up these ideas we're just seeing ourselves as really stereotypical women. It's very problematic because the overwhelming majority of people who seem to be living up to the stereotypical ideals of manhood or womanhood are cisgender people. There are a lot of cisgender people who seem really invested in those gender stereotypes. As long as you're treating other people with respect, you're not hurting other people and infringing on their lives, I think it should be fine. I don't see how you understand. I don't care how you understand your gender. I don't care how you dress. Most people, but she goes so far as to say, I'm not going to say every trans person, have reached the point where we recognize that not all trans people have the same experience. And some trans people see themselves this way. Other people might conceptualize themselves the other way. But we all fall under this umbrella of people who have the experience of understanding our genders in a way that's different from the gender we are assigned at birth. Trans people are very diverse in all these different aspects. Anyone who says we're just trying to be really stereotype masculine men and feminine women just doesn't know any trans people. They just saw a couple interviews with, say, Caitlyn Jenner or whatever, and they just made that assumption about everyone else. So I wasn't originally planning to talk about it, but I think that last part kind of hammers home where a lot of people's interactions with trans individuals in the media are through high-profile 
trans individuals. Laverne Cox, for instance, who you know made headlines when she was in various Netflix series. And Caitlyn Jenner, who made headlines when a very famous athlete from the past, you know, began identifying as a woman and, you know, that shocked the whole world because, again, someone who is seen as a very masculine individual suddenly began expressing themselves in very feminine terms. I am aware back in, I think, in the 1930s, there was, I don't know the exact details, a um, Air Force pilot or something who had, like, one of the very first high-profile sex change surgeries in really butchering this Norway or something. And when they came back to the United States, they were seen as, you know, kind of this object of fascination. I don't think there was a lot of negative coverage over this. More people were just shocked by the idea that this could be a thing, that someone could change their sex. And over time, I think religious and conservative groups kind of solidified that this was wrong and immoral and went against, you know, nature and God and all that stuff. But yeah, like, People understand trans identity primarily through people who have significant power. And it's not just trans people who are doing the representing. It's people in positions of power who talk about trans people. So I am going to return to Dave Chappelle later in the episode, but I want you keeping that on the back of your mind, that the experiences of trans individuals is vastly shaped by our media ecosystem. And so if the media ecosystem, both trans individuals within it and people talking about trans individuals within it, have negative things to say or leave negative impressions with individuals, uh, that's going to lead to a bad time. Anyways, just food for thought. Okay, so then one of the last questions that I'm going to talk about from this article is the uncomfortable question, how do activists respond to concerns about trans people in bathrooms? There's this stereotype that I think first started, probably before that, but it became you know, a big buzz thing, 2015, 2016 with anti-bathroom bills. Uh, a lot of people were concerned that men were going to dress up as women and sexually assault people in bathrooms. And unfortunately, newsflash, men don't need to dress up like women to sexually assault women in bathrooms. Uh, they do that already. That is a grim reality of our world. Uh, unfortunately, a lot of sexual abusers don't feel the need to disguise their intentions. They just do what they want. So already on the face of it, I think it's fair to say that there's significantly more cisgender individuals who are abusing people in bathrooms just based off of, you know, percentage of the population and all that. But her argument is this. She says, I wrote an essay earlier this year called Transgender People, Bathrooms, and Sexual Predators, What the Data Says, that touches on a couple of different points. There are two main strategies that anti-trans activists keep pushing. One is that kids are being pushed transgender, and the other one is trans people are supposedly being potential sexual predators in bathrooms. Uh, she cites a BBC article that I'll bring up a little bit later, but she mentions this BBC article suggests that trans women are pushing lesbians and having sex with them. It's a common point over and over and over again. So Robinson was talking about a J.K. Rowling quote, J.K. Rowling being, of course, a very cool and decent billionaire using her platform to talk about the importance of biological sex and how trans women aren't women. Uh, loving that, really. Uh, <laughs> for someone who crafted a book series which is about young individuals finding themselves in a mysterious world. A book series which started with a book where a kid lives in a closet, is shunned by his peers, and goes to a place called Diagonally, Di Diagonally, not straight, to learn how to be a wizard. You'd think that an individual who coded certain characters as gay might be a little more accepting. Uh, unfortunately, that's not how things shake out. Anyways, so she says, I show a couple different empirical studies in her article that show that trans women and trans-inclusive bathroom policies, there's no sign that they cause any harm to anybody. Not only that, but there's also other research showing that trans people face a disproportionate amount of harassment in bathrooms, even when they can't go into the appropriate bathroom. There are more cis women sexual predators than there are trans people or transsexual predators just out of numbers. There are some cisgender women who commit sex offenses, so should all cisgender women not be allowed in bathrooms? There's absolutely no evidence that trans women are a threat to women and children. But, and this is a really good point to bring up, it's a classic card to play in creating moral panics. It came up during civil rights and segregation. There were, again, I'm going to butcher this, multiple U.S. presidents had, you know, African-American leaders over from uh, Lincoln to, you know, the 1950s. And often there were, you know, hoo-hahs in newspapers, both northern and southern, talking about whether or not they would have to burn the tablecloth and, you know, get rid of the dishes after a black leader had used them. Yeah, this rhetoric about certain classes of people being dirty and dangerous is repeated throughout history. During up the 1960s and 70s, it came up in Anita Bryant, who was an anti-gay activist, uh, against gays and lesbians being teachers who are recruiting students into being gay. It's been used against other groups such as immigrants and Jewish people. It's a standard card people throw out. 
To get back to the other question, you asked about how to think about transphobia, and she says that she definitely agrees that sometimes activist language can backfire or be misinterpreted. I think that's a really good example when it talks you know, about things like civil rights. There is something in colleges called critical race theory, which is an advanced way of thinking about race. It has been distorted and misinterpreted in the media ecosystem. Again, people have this perception that every kindergarten in America is teaching critical race theory, when again, it's a advanced idea that builds upon other ideas in order to be understood. But even then, it's an advanced way of looking at the world that points out some of the faults with our society, so maybe we should be teaching more of that in schools if we do value equality in our nation, but I don't want to distract from the main point. What she means by the fact that actress language can backfire is that anyone who has more than a passing understanding about sexism or racism understands it's more complex than something like, I literally hate women, or that I can't be racist because I have a black friend. It's more complicated than that. These forms of marginalization are systemic throughout culture, and sometimes they're built into the language. Sometimes they're built into unconscious perceptions of other people, or stereotypes that we project onto people. They are complex phenomenon. One useful thing to recognize is that transphobia is systemic and often unconscious. A lot of times within trans communities, we'll talk about cisnormativity, which kind of has its origins in the term heteronormativity. Heteronormativity means, not that you hate gay, lesbian, and bisexual people, that we live in a society where being heterosexual is the norm and is seen as the ideal. And if people don't live up to that ideal, they're seen as inferior or defective, or having some kind of failing. And so it's not that you hate them, but you look down on them, or you see them as being lesser or less legitimate. The idea that same-sex marriages shouldn't happen is based on the idea that those marriages are not as legitimate as other people's heterosexual marriages. With cisnormativity, the ideal is that all people should be cisgender, and therefore, because of that ideal, being trans is seen as a bad outcome. So there are some people who are not completely trans-antagonistic or ideologically opposed to trans people. I would call them trans-suspicious or trans-skeptical in that they acknowledge that trans people exist. They think we should be tolerated and that we shouldn't be, say, outlawed or anything. But they're very suspicious because they have a very cis-normative view of the world. The idea is that every single thing possible should be done to make sure people don't turn out trans. They don't acknowledge the harm in that and what it does to trans people. Or they'll assume that trans people's perspectives are automatically suspect, whereas the cisgender norm is just accepted. Whew, there's a lot to unpack there. I think this is a really good way of thinking about it but also potentially dangerous. Maybe I don't know as much as a a trans researcher, but I do think there's a lot more people who fear the different elements of our society than she's letting on. That there's a lot more people who definitely feel trans people shouldn't exist than people who are like weirded out by it, but like are okay of it. I do think this is a phenomenon. It's true of a lot of things. You know, I've read a number of people who've said, well, you know, gay people would be more accepted if they acted more like straight people. Uh, And that's the exact same idea. The idea that pride culture is something that, you know, makes it less likely that gay people will be accepted. And so, you know, gay people would have a much easier time if they just got rid of all their frivolity and, you know, hand waves and lisps and all that and, you know, just conform to the stereotypes of heterosexuality. And that's the exact same idea where, Again, heterosexuality, this kind of like, I was going to say normal, and that I guess kind of shows how ingrained it is, this kind of default idea that, you know, the ideal marriage is between a man and a woman who have two and a half kids and live in a house with a white picket fence and they have, you know, missionary sex for the purposes of procreation. All of that is supposed to be, you know, what people strive towards. And if you want to be gay, well, that's okay, but make sure you still have those two and a half kids and that, you know, you live in a white picket fence house and all that jazz have sex only for purposes of pleasure. I I don't know. The idea still applies where you can't be a polyamorous gay people, a gay person. You can't be a gay person who attends pride events. You can't be a gay person who wears pride material at work. You can't be a gay person who, you know, also is a nudist who also is, I don't even know, an anarchist or something. It's this idea that if you want to be, you know, different than culture, that's fine, but you have to conform as much of yourself to the ideals of culture. And I think it's a step forward like it's not like inherently opposed to trans people in this instance and that's good but as she points out and again this is a really important argument here when you have media when you have people talking about trans people with a degree of skepticism that affects trans individuals who are kind of on the fence and don't know how to come out one of the biggest reasons that you know trans people run away from home one of the biggest reasons they commit suicide is a lack of community acceptance and the idea again that the media ecosystem is only reflecting images of cisgender individuals and is constantly hostile towards or confused about transgender people 
makes it more likely that they themselves are going to be confused. And so the only way you can really make a like comforting environment for trans people is to not treat them as aberrations and instead treat them as something that's, you know, equally accepted and isn't worthy of novelty. Right? So maybe stop writing all these articles where you're like the first transgender astronaut or the first transgender, I don't know, um, winner of the Tour de France. I don't know off the top of my head. It's good to, you know, set milestones for these communities, but don't pretend as though these people are aberrations. Pretend that, you know, they're just a normal part of society to a lot of degrees. And you're going to see, I think, a large drop in the suicide rate and, you know, issues with mental illness among trans individuals. So I think that was a really good article. I think it's really well articulated stuff. I'll put that in the description. Again, I'm also going to put Dr. Shapiro's Medium blog link in the description as well, because if you have further questions about uh, various arguments used against trans people or even just confused about the topic itself, you know, she can provide really good primers. Uh, again, as someone who's both trans and has a PhD in molecular biology, she's much more informed on the subject than I am. I can speak about it with a degree of knowledge I certainly cannot. However, what I didn't want to really talk about for the entire episode was this article. I think it's a great article, but I kind of wanted to discuss a reaction I got to it. So we do have a Twitter. It's at date these guys. We really do not post on it. I've been getting a little bit better at that and reposting and retweeting stuff that I found. But yeah, we're not using it. Don't feel bad if you're not following us on Twitter. We'd love if you followed us on Twitter. But to this point, we're really just, you know, posting when we have new episodes up. So on November 27th, uh, this is, okay, right now as of recording, that's about a week and a quarter ago, I posted a link to this article on our Twitter page. And I said, it's a great interview in At Current Affairs with At Julia Serrano that discusses and engages with slash refutes anti-trans propaganda like no other article we've seen. A very good piece. I then followed it and said Dr. Toronto also has a medium blog with more high-quality articles and find that here. And this made numbers. It really didn't. We got 22 retweets, uh, four quote tweets, and 65 likes, which is more than any other thing that we've posted, but, you know, not incredible by any means. So I was like, okay, that's that. But then two days later, an individual replied to this post. And I've gone, like, back and forth about whether or not I want to, like, use their name. I am going to use their handle. I'm not using this as a platform to say good bully them or anything. You can't win an argument against people who live by antagonizing other individuals. I don't think that works at all. I do want to provide proof that I'm not making this up and, you know, potentially provide the ability for you to verify what I'm saying. I never want you to take something at my word or, you know, the word of this podcast. Please independently verify facts and remain skeptical against the content that you consume. Your authority figures should constantly be questioned, I guess is what I'm getting at. So yes, this is at Chalmer Irving responded and said to both us, Julia Serrano and Current Affairs, I quote, I read this interview from start to finish and I still have no clue what makes a trans woman a woman and a trans man a man. Serrano insists that it's not uh, stereotypes that's far more complicated, and that's it. It's complicated, it's not an answer, it's a cop-out. So, I'm in the gym at the time at work, and I'm looking at this, and I think to myself, hmm, is it possible this person is trolling, just trying to, you know, muddy the waters? I always try to presume on the internet people are acting in good faith. I have not been attacked ever really online, and so I have the luxury of being able to live in a world where everyone on the internet acts in good faith. That's probably inaccurate. So I figured, okay, this is like the first time people were engaging with stuff we're tweeting. I might as well respond and presume they're acting in good faith and give them like an effective answer. I did think that they were probably trolling and deny their gender identity and, you know, call her out for being stupid or whatever. But again, I, I felt it was important to provide the opportunity to educate. So I replied and said, I don't know if the interview is attempting to even broach that question, but rather dispel common bad faith attacks used to fearmonger and justify discrimination. Now, the interview does kind of answer that. The interview does have a section where she discusses that. But again, it wasn't the focus. The whole point of the article was to discuss anti-trans arguments and use her incredible knowledge to kind of dispel those. I followed and said, to your point, I don't even know if it's complicated. It's based on how people feel. And if you can accept that the current definition of women, which is written to exclude trans women, still includes beings without breasts, such as mastectomy survivors, without reproductive organs, without reproductive potential or desire to reproduce, it doesn't seem too difficult to distance yourself from the idea that womanhood is only biological. I don't know if this makes intuitive sense. This is something I came up with in the spur of the moment based off my understanding of the issue. In essence, we have these stereotypes about, you know, what defines womanhood, what defines, you know, women. And often it comes down to their ability to reproduce. 
But the thing is, there's a lot of women who are infertile, whether, you know, because, you know, they lack reproductive organs, because they have a disease, because they've had, you know, their uteruses removed, because they're older and no longer can reproduce. But we'd still identify all those people as women. There's also people who don't have the ability to nurse, which is another big thing we identify with women, um, such as those who've had mastectomies removed or, you know, can't produce breast milk for whatever reason. There's people who don't have a desire to reproduce. They're asexual or they just don't want to have children for whatever reason. And we accept all of those as being like variations of womanhood. So it doesn't seem too crazy to like completely cut biological function out of the definition of womanhood. And at that point, I think it's it's fair to say you can just accept, you know, how people feel. Don't be an asshole about it. Now, Ms. Serrano, Dr. Serrano, did reply a couple of days later and said, FYI, the person you're responding to follows numerously explicit anti-trans accounts. But yes, the point of the interview is to challenge misinformed and disingenuous anti-trans arguments, not to defend trans people's existence, which I do most thoroughly in my book, Women Girl. Thank you, Dr. Serrano. I do appreciate that. And then Mr. Irving replied that, quote, it suffices to have a physiology that is organized to produce large gametes, even if it, for whatever disorder, cannot to be a woman. Ooh, that made my head spin. Ugh, boy, that was quite the answer. I kind of just stared at my screen for a couple minutes and went back to my treadmill. Yeah, so the argument this individual is making is that, in essence, only women are women, and that in order to, and by only women he means biological women, let's be clear, and that in order to defend the existence of trans women or accept them as valid, you have to come up with a definition that, you know, responds to this. He says something also to the effect that, to my response, based upon how people feel, that's subjective. A subjective definition is worthless, which, again, is kind of weird if you know what we were just talking about in the article, which is that biological definitions of womanhood don't make a lot of sense because of the existence of people like intersex. But then also to that extent, he's boiling down the essence of womanhood to this idea that some organisms have large gametes which I'm not a biologist. I believe that means like larger reproductive eggs. I don't know off the top of my head. The explanations online didn't make a lot of sense. But it's this whole thing where he's confusing the definition of biology, you know, and sex, biological sex with gender. He's conflating this idea that when we talk about women, we're talking about biological entities and not individuals who meet all of these, you know, stereotypical assumptions we have in our society and of course, you know, go beyond that. Again, I don't even know if I'm articulating this properly and if this even makes sense to a layperson. But again, I'm basically saying in my initial response there are plenty of biological women who don't meet typical conceptions of femininity or reproductive potential. We still consider that women. Um, there are women who dress more masculinely, women who are asexual, uh, combinations of women who can't reproduce and women who can't nurse and all of that. And their response is that my idea that, you know, it's based more on feeling is strange because their definition doesn't cover all women based off this intersex thing. But also, like, to the extent that a subjective definition is worthless, like, most definitions don't cover 100% of situations. Definitions in general are just linguistic and mental tools to better organize the world. I unfortunately went to a liberal arts school, and there's this thing that's brought up constantly with Plato and Diogenes. Uh, Plato describes a man as a featherless biped when someone asks him, you know, how would you define a man? Diogenes holds up a chicken. And he's correct, you know, it's a featherless biped. But it goes to the point that no matter really how precise your definition is, you can always come up with counterexamples. And the goal of definitions is just to cover as many instances as possible. No definition of womanhood will ever cover 100% of situations, and many might actually include individuals we might typically consider masculine. He seems to believe, this individual, that there are definitions that are 100% accurate and chooses to define women with a definition that seems plucked from a biology wiki. And it's weirdly medical to the extent that I don't think any actual woman would define themselves as such and, like, also wrong. So this individual's entire Twitter is just slamming trans people, being skeptical of wokeness, retweeting anti-trans stuff. And I don't know, it's worth talking about a couple of these things. Like his image is like a guy confessing in a confession booth and he says, forgive me because I've been problematic. I misgendered a non-binary squirrelkin. I didn't know they're a qualigender on Tuesdays. I have to do better. And the priest in the other booth who's wearing a little rainbow cloth says, yes, yes, you do, my child. The right really has one joke. It's not a meme. It's just reality. Um, But yeah, his entire feed is just people who are doing like, ooh, crazy responses. Oh, look how I slammed this individual. But it comes down to, I think, a fundamental misunderstanding of sex and gender and just the, the assumption that anything that's different from 
biological conceptions is wrong. You know, it's people he's retweeted that say things like seahorses are horses. It's right there in the name. Pseudoscience is science. It's right there in the name. And of course, the insinuation is there. Well, trans women can't be women just because like the word woman's in their name. And they're ignoring, of course. See, the problem is it's a seductive argument. Again, it's coming up with these simplistic non-starters that are difficult to respond to. But the basic idea is there are terms of art in our society. Words that combined mean something slightly different than the individual words that they are. If I say seahorse, I don't literally mean we've dropped a pony in the ocean that swims around. I mean it's an entity that you know has a face that maybe you could say looks like a horse. Uh, if I say pseudoscience, I'm not saying that pseudoscience is a type of science. I mean it is, I guess, a really, really badly mangled form of science, but I'm saying it's a bad version of science, the representation of science in a bad way. And in the same way, you know, when we talk about trans women, the idea is not that they can't be women just because, you know, they have this name that's slightly different. It's to say, when we talk about trans women, they're women. Like, I don't really know where the problem's coming up. You know, another person says pineapples or apples. It's right there in the name. And this is reminding me of the killer's song, I've Got Soul, I'm Not a Soldier. And now I really just want to listen to that. A lot of people want to talk about how important it is to debate trans people. One person he retweeted says, does debating Christianity deny the existence of Christians? No. Does debating Islam deny the existence of Muslims? No. Does debating gay rights deny the existence of gay people? No. Does debating gender ideology deny the existence of trans people? And then they conclude by saying no debate equals totalitarianism. And again, this is an argument that seems like it makes sense on the surface until you think about, A, this idea Dr. Serrano brings up, which is trans skepticism, which is creating kind of this hostile media climate towards people and making them question whether or not it's worth coming out when they face such a hostile environment. But B, it kind of does, depending on what like you're attempting to do. Uh, like throughout history, there have been like institutions that debate whether or not people's version of Christianity is valid and executing them if they don't feel it meets their standards. We definitely spend a lot of time in the United States debating like Islam and whether or not that was a valid religion or just like this hateful rhetoric. I'm not saying that's accurate. I'm saying that's what the media was talking about post 2001. And there is a lot of discussion about whether or not, you know, Muslim people could even be American citizens if their allegiance was to, you know, evil and all of that. Like, I'm not saying that this was debating Islam per se. It was debating, you know, whether or not Islamists, you know, even deserve to have rights. And that's really problematic because at the point where you're having these intense conversations about individuals and whether or not they deserve rights, you're kind of past the point of even like accepting them as human beings. Like you can have intellectual conversations about different elements of religion, but the intent really dictates whether or not that's acceptable discourse in a society. Like, does debating gay rights deny the existence of gay people? A little bit, yeah, because I would say there were a lot of people in the 1980s who were like, okay, we don't need to murder gay individuals, but at the same time, they didn't want to give them marriage rights, didn't want to give them tax benefits. They thought that, you know, it wasn't real, it wasn't valid, so why would you give them, you know, recognition before the law? And so it's important, I think, to have these conversations for the simple fact that there's so many bad faith arguments out there that it's easy to fall into these kind of intellectual traps. It's easy to, you know, accept, you know, a cleverly worded argument because it's so difficult to unpack these issues. And I think returning to Dr. Serrano, we need to look at, you know, how the media landscape is talking about trans individuals and whether or not it's doing a good job of, you know, presenting them in a favorable light, or at least a light that isn't inherently skeptical of who they are. Okay, kind of roundabout way to get to this next part. But in our current events episode in October 2021, we did a discussion of Dave Chappelle's transphobia. And in that special, he talks down the trans community using his platform as a multimillionaire media figure, taking the opportunity to proudly assert himself as a transphobic, calls out the trans community without any evidence for somehow hurting the black community, denies the idea that gender and sex are different concepts, and uses a dead performer as proof that, without any evidence, trans individuals are dangerous and will drive people to suicide. We called this hateful and insensitive and all that jazz, and I don't think my opinion on the topic has changed over the last month or so. And in the middle of that conversation, I inserted this little bit, which I was going to clip, but then I'm like, why would I clip me talking when I'm already doing this episode where it's just me talking, and I'll just read it off. But in retrospect, I feel I should have gone into a bit more detail. Even in the context of using it to further cudgel Dave for speaking from a position of ignorance and one in bad faith, I don't think I should have brought up the phrasing of these arguments in such a manner and I attribute that to sloppy writing and us not thoroughly unpacking the issue. So let's return to that briefly. So the quote is such. 
Now, I do think the argument that gay people sometimes selectively use minority status is interesting and worth discussing because there's a long history of marginalized groups working together for a common cause of rights and then abandoning their allies when convenient. But it's A, irrelevant because Dave was talking about trans people and being trans and being gay are different things. B, thrown out arbitrarily to preempt critiques that he's demonizing an entire group of people. Like, I'm not sure where he's getting the idea that gay people spend all day harassing black people online or ignoring their issue. C, ignores the fact that if they're both gay and trans people in the black community. And D, ignores the reality that if you pretend to be a minority ally but abandon your allies in a time of need, you're an asshole, which is not something unique to the group and probably a better criticism to be levied to the powerful, not the powerless, and doesn't really need to be discussed in great detail. Okay. What I was trying to mean by this is that what I mean by this is the gay community sometimes selectively uses minority status is trying to convey the idea that gay individuals theoretically have one of the easiest minority statuses to hide and can either not bring up their gayness or hide any identifying markings of gayness to fit in groups of people that might wish them ill. I am not saying gay and queer individuals have life easy. I'm saying that people with different skin tones or ethnic features, women or trans individuals, sometimes can have a much harder time fitting in with a society that may wish them ill and can suffer far more. I want to be perfectly clear. I'm not calling out the whole community. I'm saying this is simply something gay individuals can do in certain situations because they're not burdened by minority status in the same way that other minority groups are. Now, why this is important is that the queer community only found success when it began to unify. The queer community, you know, first kind of emerged as a political action group in the 1960s and didn't find a lot of success until the 1980s and 1990s when we began to bring in other groups that were also under queer labels and also like black civil rights leaders in order to project their cause. If you think about it, most civil rights groups are representing marginalized people who don't represent a significant portion of the population. So, you know, if gay people are 5% of the population and trans people are 1% of the population and asexual people are 0.5% of the population, individually, they don't have as much political power as just like heteronormativity. But when they work together, suddenly they get, you know, a far greater share of the vote and suddenly they can draw a lot more attention to their issue and suddenly, you know, they can become more of a political powerhouse. And this is true of a lot of civil rights groups. Uh, a lot of, you know, civil rights was fought by black community leaders, but they also were allied with both white poor people as well as like Asian American groups, yellow power groups, and Native American groups, like red power groups. That was the term a lot of them used. I'm not trying to be pejorative there. Again, the idea is that these groups find success when they work together. And uh, Wikipedia sort of talks about the history of the LGBT groups as such. We don't talk about, of course, LG rights. We talk about LGBT rights. And, you know, the acronym has evolved over time. They say many variants exist, including variations that change the order of letters, including LGBT+, to encompass various spectrums of sexuality and gender. Other common variants also exist, such as LGBTQIA, with the A standing for asexual, aromantic, or agender. Longer acronyms have prompted criticism for their length. FAIR, I've heard LGBTQQIAA, which does not roll off the tongue and I always have to think about. And of course, the implication that the acronym refers to a single community is also controversial. Although identical in meaning, LGBT may have a more feminist connotation than GLBT, so places the L first. It may also sometimes include additional cues for queer or questioning. The order of letters has not been standardized. The L or G may be used first, but less common letters may appear in almost any orders. Uh, longer initialisms are sometimes referred to as alphabet soup. The terms pansexual, homosexual, fluid, and gender identified are regarded as falling under the umbrella term bisexual and therefore referred to often as part of the bisexual community. However, depending on where you are in the world, there can be variations. So other variants may have a U for unsure, a C for curious, another T for transvestite, a TS or two for two-spirit persons, or an SA for straight allies. That has gained controversy as many straight allies have been accused of using LGBT advocacy to gain popularity and status, and various activists have criticized heteronormative worldview of certain straight allies. Uh, some groups may also add a P for polyamorous, an H for HIV-affected, or an O for other. The term LGBTIH has been seen in use in India to accompany the hijara third gender identity and the related subculture. So I guess the point I'm trying to make is there's a lot of different groups that can fall under the queer community umbrella. There's a lot of different groups that, when collectively combined, compose a far larger chunk of the population than you might think. And of course, I'm not discounting that you can't simply add these groups together. Like, if you're queer identifying, the likelihood you identify as more than one thing is probably higher. That's not to say that, like, individuals are sucking up as many identities as they can to appear cool. It's to say that if you identify as queer, you probably have done enough introspection to realize that you fit one or more different aspects of queerness. Like, a heterosexual person who's never heard of these things probably considers themselves straight. They may have some desires, such as a 
low sex drive, you could call asexual, that they've never thought of as asexual. The, the idea is the more you're thinking about this, the more you're probably thinking about how you fit into these, and so you probably fit more identities. Anyways, the whole general idea is that the more groups you bring together, the more strong your social movement can be. And when the gay community brought in transgender individuals in the 1980s, which is when it's first thought this was used, uh, you started to see expansions of both outreach and political success in areas like San Francisco. So it's really, really important to bring in allies is the point I'm trying to make. How you achieve civil rights victories is start working together, take your fractions of the population, and start achieving major success. Now, by the same note, if you don't like those coalitions and want to break them apart and reduce the impact they have on the world, what you do is you attempt to sever the connections. And my concern now that the media has kind of come around and started saying, okay, you know, gay people are okay, I guess. It's a big turnaround from, you know, the conversations I was seeing in 2010 where there's still a lot of skepticism about whether or not gay individuals are all predators. The media is, you know, for the most part, normalized gayness. But now there's a lot of concerns about trans identity. Now there's a lot of skepticism in media about trans identity. And you have figures like J.K. Rowling and Dave Chappelle who are attempting to otherize trans individuals. And even, not inadvertently, not even hatred. It could just be trans skepticism. But the way they're talking about trans individuals is deeply disturbing. And I think in specific terms, we can talk about the impact media is having on the relationship of gay individuals and the trans community. And what brought this up was two articles I saw in British media. The first was a Guardian article from October, which was, you know, my hope for a more open discussion of women's and trans rights is fading by a prominent activist whose main point was that women should be treated based on their biological sex and nothing else. And this was published, you know, front page of The Guardian and received a lot of flack. But no one's reading the responses to this where people point out her hypocrisy and inability to think outside of the constraints of biology. They read the main article and commented positively and they got great coverage. The other piece that I saw, which has gained a little more controversy online, was a BBC article from October. And that article was called, We're Being Pressured Into Sex by Some Trans Women. This article discusses how some people in lesbian relationships between cis and trans individuals feel pressure to have sex with or not break up with them. General message is that trans people should be feared and that we need to question cis and trans identities a bit more. Uh, there's also the slight issue that the author interviewed some gross people, like a well-known rapist in the porn community for their opinion, and threw that in until called out for it, interviewed well-known trans activists who had narratives that ran contrary to her piece, but chose not to include them. On the face of it, like... It's a weird title for an article. We're being pressured into sex by some trans women. Rhetorically, you could substitute we're being pressured into sex by some African-American individuals. And I think you understand inherently why that's a problem. Like, there's deeper racial implications if you do that. And so if it's wrong when you start substituting in other minority groups, maybe you have to wonder whether or not it's wrong to call out this group. Like, no one's denying that there may be, you know, a handful of cases where lesbians feel uncomfortable not wanting to date a trans individual. Great. That doesn't mean that trans individuals, who again comprise 1% of the population by reasonable estimates, need to be feared or that they're all predators or anything. It's taking a handful of cases and exaggerating them in order to influence the public in such a way that they're skeptical of trans people and or afraid of them. And that's deeply concerning. What's more concerning is how the BBC has defended this. And, you know, there's been a lot of discussion on Twitter about this, but I did see a good breakdown by Sean, a British YouTuber known mostly for long-form videos responding to the content arguments produced by conservative media. He's done two videos discussing how BBC has responded to the faults of the uh, article, and both of them have not shown the BBC to be an organization that admits faults very easily. I'm going to link a video, which is part two of a piece covering their article, and in the video he discusses how he sent two letters to the BBC talking about questioning, really, the content of the article and whether or not the BBC is willing to defend the hate speech that it contains. Specifically, the article cites a survey by the group Get the L Out, which surveyed a grand total of 80 people. The BBC admits this is a very small sample size, but defends it because there's not a lot of research done in this area. Get the L out. Deliberately misgenders trans individuals. Says all transsexuals rape women's bodies. The article states in reference to this quote, that this analysis remains as relevant as ever. Yeah, it's concerning that the BBC is standing behind this, but, you know, Sean managed to organize a number of people to write the BBC about this in the hopes that they would either take the content down, question whether or not they should publish similar content in the future, 
or stop associating with the author who decided this was a piece worth talking about. Unfortunately, they have not. And I'm well aware the BBC has the discretion to choose which material would like to cover, but given the marginalization of trans individuals in society and the high rates of violence against them in the status quo, I would argue there seems to be no reason to continue publishing content like this unless the network agrees with the idea that trans people are manipulative and dangerous. Content like this exacerbates violence and contributes to a media landscape already hostile to non-cisgender bodies. I personally think that the BBC can do better. And if you watch the Sean video, there's some links in there which show how you can express discomfort with the BBC. You can't, unfortunately, do this to all media. A lot of news organizations do have the ability to report articles and call them out for content. They typically like to include that in case it turns out that, you know, one of the authors of the article or one of the people they cited turns out to be, you know, a horrible racist or something. Uh, they do like being informed, so they can't be called out for being bad in the future. Uh, the BBC does have certain publishing standards under UK law, so it's a little bit easier to report this content and draw attention to their failings. But the general idea is that we need to be deeply skeptical of how big mainstream media is publishing and talking about trans content. Obviously, there are influential media figures like Dave Chappelle and J.K. Rowling who need to be called out for their attitudes as well. But given that the media landscape has shifted to these giant aggregates where, you know, small local journalism is no longer as prominent, it's going to become more and more important to question this and call out hypocrisy and damaging material moving forward. Hopefully, you know, you are less skeptical because of trans people and more willing to accept that they're worthy of rights and don't deserve to be marginalized after hearing a lot of this. But if not, I felt there was a good article from January of this year. Sorry, it's a research study from January of this year, which discusses some of the implications of unnormalized media. And the journal article was titled, Negative Transgender-Related Media Messages Are Associated with Adverse Mental Health Outcomes in a Multi-State Study of Transgender Individuals. And the article was published by Hugto et al. in LGBT Health in January of this year. And the abstract discusses how the purpose of the study was to examine the extent to which transgender people observe negative transgender-related messages in relationship between negative media message exposure and the mental health of transgender people. I mean, I get that not all, like, Science and sociology is intuitive. There's a lot of non-intuitive like research that's been done where we've revealed a lot of ways like people's minds don't work in logical manners. But I would say that if you're a member of a minority group, media is largely hostile to your minority group and treats it as weird or different. You're probably going to have bad mental health. But yes, this study kind of confirms that. So in 2019, they did a survey with 554 transgender adults assessing demographics, negative transgender-related media messages, violence, and mental health. Uh, they also did logistic regression models examining the association of frequency of negative media exposure and clinically significant symptoms of depression, anxiety, post-traumatic stress disorder, and global psychological distress. Now, the median age of the sample was 31 years, 82% were white, non-Hispanic, 56.9% had a college degree, half identified as non-binary, 67% were financially insecure. That's a big number. The majority reported experiencing childhood abuse, 60.6%, and abuse in adulthood, 58%. 97.6% of the sample reported exposure to negative media depictions of transgender people across a range of mediums. That's negative, not skeptical, like Dr. Serrano was talking about, negative. So again, her hypothesis that you know a lot of people were skeptical rather than being hateful with trans people may be an understatement, so to speak. In separate multivariable models adjusted for age, gender identity, race, education, income, and childhood adult abuse, more frequent exposure to negative depictions of transgender people in media was significantly associated with clinically significant symptoms of depression. Good stuff. So, I've been talking for a while. Hopefully you have not turned off the podcast quite yet. I know my voice and my tone and the general things I say can be off-putting at times. I appreciate if you've stuck with me this far. At the beginning of the episode, I was talking about reading books from the past. And maybe, you know, you thought it was stupid that, you know, I thought of myself as morally pure of heart and righteous and that, you know, if I happened to, you know, be a farm worker in the distant past that, you know, I would have treated black slaves as, you know, equal of rights and fought with John Brown and all of that to defend them. And again, I want to emphasize that I don't think that's realistic, where people's opinions on topics are dramatically influenced by family, friends, and the media ecosystem in which they live. And I think I've demonstrated to an extent that a lot of mainstream media feels comfortable, a lot of mainstream media figures feel comfortable being consistently hostile towards or skeptical of the existence of trans people. And that's frustrating, because trans people, again, like other marginalized groups, like the homeless, like immigrants, like Native Americans, like refugees from the third world, 
are human beings. You know, they're worthy of respect. They're worthy of not having to live their life in fear and suffering. And hopefully, you know, we can create a better world in which they don't have to deal with this and we don't have to constantly call them out as being different and weird. If you're wondering, you know, how you can make a difference when you see this shit, you know, people doing this stuff, call it out, report abusive content, write letters, you know, if you can question people who try to unnormalize it. I'm not going to say vote, but if you you know think that voting is important, which it is, but not as much as like doing community action, don't vote for people who aren't firmly committed to equality, who can't firmly make commitments to the idea that all human people have like equivalent value, and then keep writing them if they do end up in office. So many politicians find it easy to adopt you know this language surrounding progressivism, but then utterly fail to act on it because they realize that activists will fall for it over and over again, and. You have to be, you know, skeptical of these individuals and make their lives hell if they're not willing to follow through on it because they know that people will drop it if, you know, the election has ended and, you know, their side has won. They know they don't have to have their feet held to the fire. But if they do experience backlash, that's when they're willing to act up. I hope this has answered some questions. I hope this has clarified some things for you. If, again, you're like me and didn't fully have a good understanding of, you know, transgender issues and, you know, whether or not conservative individuals had, you know, some correct perspectives on things. In general, don't be dicks. I've said this before, but you've had much more in common with like a homeless individual than a millionaire because you're far more likely to be one. In the same way, like you have much more in common with a trans person who just wants to be accepted than a bigot who just wants to hate. You probably have aspects of yourself that you feel are either marginalized or called out for, and you don't want to be someone who's constantly in the spotlight being questioned for every aspect of your existence and every decision you make. Be on the right side of history. Don't be someone who in 100 years is laughed at by their ancestors and seen as foolish. Pick the right side. Thanks for listening to me, y'all. I uh, hope you enjoy your weeks. Don't buy Trader Joe's eggnog. That's all I can say for now. I got soul, but I'm not a soldier. I got soul, but I'm not a soldier. I got soul, but I'm not a soldier. We have many thanks for the use of our theme music, which is the song Drop by Ketza. You can find more of their music online at ketza.uk. You can also find Date These Guys online on Twitter and Instagram at Date These Guys, or visit our website at datetheseguys.org. If you have questions you'd like us to discuss on the podcast or marriage proposals for either of us, shoot us an email at datetheseguys at gmail.com. If you're looking to make an impact, this show recommends giving either time or money to Planned Parenthood, a nonprofit organization that provides reproductive health care in the United States and globally. Planned Parenthood clinics and affiliates provide birth control and long-acting reversible contraception, clinical breast examinations, cervical cancer screenings, pregnancy testing, prenatal care, testing and treatment for sexually transmitted infections, and abortions. Planned Parenthood also does great work for those who can't afford traditional medical services. Approximately four out of five of their clients have incomes at or below 150% of the federal poverty level. Both Joel and Naomi are monthly donors to Planned Parenthood. You could be too. The intro and outro music of Why Will No One Date These Guys is from the song Drop by the artist Ketza. It is licensed through Creative Commons, and we are deeply appreciative that they've allowed us to use it.